Hello, come join us. Sorry, we're starting a little late. We had some Zoom difficulties. But Tom Friedman is with us, and we're all set to get going. So come on in. We'll take a few minutes to let you all come in, and we'll hop in. Let me just take a moment to uh, get us going here. I'm Larry Jacobs. I'm a professor at the University of Minnesota in the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, which is the University of Minnesota School of Public Affairs. I want to let you know at the bottom of your screen, you'll see a Q&A button. And uh, this is so you can give us questions, um, which we will respond to as much as possible. It is a great pleasure to have my friend Tom Friedman with us. Tom is the most nationally and internationally visible Minnesotan. <laughs> so thank you, Tom, for coming. Um, Tom was born in Minneapolis. He was raised in a suburb just outside Minneapolis called St. Louis Park, which has produced so many outstanding Americans. Tom went to the University of Minnesota for a few years and then transferred to Brandeis University. As many of you know, Tom writes a weekly column, the New York Times, and he's written seven books, um, including some blockbuster bestsellers, uh, including From Beirut to Jerusalem, published in 1989, which won the National Book Award. He wrote The World is Flat, which was a global bestseller, including in China, where it was uh, published, though without some of the criticisms of China. Um, most recently, he published Thank You for Being Late, uh, which is a terrific book about where we are in America um, and includes a nice section on Minnesota. Tom has won three Pulitzer Prizes. He's also been uh, awarded the Order of the British Empire from the Queen, which is an extraordinary recognition. Um, he has lived, reported from the Middle East. He's familiar with leaders on most of the continents, and he is a true pleasure to talk to. Tom Friedman, thank you so much for joining us today. Larry, great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. It's great. Um, your columns of late have been um, a bit more pessimistic than, than the Tom Friedman columns that have a theme of hopefulness and optimism, even, at, even at, as you kind of surveyed the world. Um, and I'm curious, do you think America's on the downslide? Um, you know, I think that we're seeing things, Larry, that um, I've, I've never seen before. And, oh, excuse me, I have seen them before, covering the Lebanese Civil War. And um, I think that's one of the reasons maybe that um, you sense the alarm in my column, because, you know, every journalist has their, you know, baptismal experience, their, you know, their founding, you know, journalistic encounter. And mine was actually going essentially from Minnesota to via, via London and Oxford to, um, to Beirut and covering um, uh, years uh, um, four through nine of the Lebanese Civil War. And so I actually saw a country fall apart. I actually saw what happens when people go all the way. I saw what happens when people think that there's so much ruin in this country, we can, 
we can just hack away at it for our own narrow interests as much as, as we want. I saw what happens when major political actors don't stop at red lights. One of the most searing experiences I ever saw uh, in my time in Beirut, and I don't remember the exact context or which of the many battles, Shiite, Sunni, Christian, Muslim, but um, it broke out very suddenly and I saw a car uh, going down the street backwards at 50 miles an hour. And it's my image in my head of just total breakdown. I never forgot it. Um, and maybe yeah, I'd never heard, I'd never heard a gunshot growing up in Minnesota. So uh, until I came to Beirut. So I, I'm aware that um, what happens when people go all the way, um, when they violate, violate not only the rules of the game, the written rules of the game, but the norms of the game. And, um, and I see that happening here. Um, I see that happening here and I see it happening with impunity. And I believe that it's not only Joe Biden and Donald Trump that are on the ballot uh, in this election. You know, something deep and fundamental about America is on the ballot. And um, uh, I believe that we, we are going to have a contested election um, uh, unless Joe Biden managed to win by a landslide, which I think is, is still, um, I, I hope that's what I'm supporting, but I, I sort of not going to count on it. Um, Trump is telling us in every way he can that there are two things and two things only that will happen on November 4th. Either he will be declared the winner or he will contest the election and attempt to attempt to delegitimize all of the mail-in ballots, which he is assuming and is predicted to come in roughly two to one for Biden. Um, and once that happens, that we're off to the races. Um, uh, then anything could happen. Um, people taking sides, um, Trump and Trump media delegitimizing the outcome. Um, I can get really dark. I, I you know, I, I, yeah. can ruin, I can ruin any dinner party and I do what I do weddings and bar mitzvahs, you know, so, um, also, but, uh, you know, I could, I can imagine some, uh, some really dark scenarios on November 4th. Um, we yeah, are, this is, you know, so that's this it. Is this, this is the side of Tom Friedman, um, yeah. that hasn't been publicly visible. You've written a number of columns over the last couple of months that have gone into detail. You've talked about the politics of humiliation, the decline in social trust. After the bombing in Beirut in early August, you went back to your experience there. and You begin your column by saying that in Lebanon, everything is now politics. And you go on to then make a comparison between the United States and Lebanon and other Middle Eastern countries saying that our political differences are so deep that our two parties now resemble religious sects. And we can see this where you've got a Republican party that describes our energy, meaning oil and gas and coal, yeah. along with opposition to abortion and opposition to face masks, and the Democratic party adopting you know, the opposite side as if it was a zero-sum game. Are we really that far down the road of, of, of decay and civil war? You know, um, I often get in trouble, Larry, when I talk about U.S. and China and any comparisons between U.S. and China. So, but uh, what the hell, let's get in trouble. Um, you know, there's only one thing worse in my view than one party autocracy, which China has. Uh, and that's one party democracy. 
So one party democracy is when you have a party in power and the other party is completely dedicated to obstructing and undermining uh, the decision-making and uh, policies of that party in power. And um, when you have one party autocracy like China and you have a leadership that however autocratic is at least trained in engineering and science and believes in Newtonian physics, um, it can order in many ways from the top down um, uh, new infrastructure, new education, et cetera, even as it's crushing the hopes and dreams of uh, Uyghurs and other uh, uh, Chinese, you know, aspiring to a, a more open society. But it can order a lot, of, a lot of things that can advance that society from the top down. When you have a one-party democracy, where basically one party's ruling and the other party is obstructing in a system that is constitutionally designed actually to divide power, uh, but assumes that the parties will compromise in the end to come together on big decisions and do big hard things together. When you have that, you're really stymied. You're just spinning your wheels. I mean, we, we, we're just spinning our wheels. And think about, um, I mean, there isn't a bridge out there that would be named after Trump. We, we, haven't, we haven't built an ounce of infrastructure, you know. Um, we're trying to destroy the little national health care. We have not we, the Republican Party under Trump. And so I'm really worried, how long can we go on with a system of government that is built around the notion of divided power so no one can emerge as a king? Then unable to produce the compromises that were also embedded in the logic of that system. And we just keep drifting year after year after year. And so I, I, I'm, I'm very worried. And I think the reason we have done so poorly in this pandemic, and that is one of the reasons. And, the other, the other main one is that progress really depends in a democracy on truth and trust, um, that we all share the same basic truths and we share enough trust that even when we disagree, we can come together for a solution. And we have an administration that has been destroying uh, truth and trust uh, almost as a policy. Trump's whole approach to politics is to divide us. He describes as fake news anything that he doesn't like or is critical of him. And we have social networks now, uh, particularly Facebook and Twitter, whose business model, whose business model is to arouse you um, by putting in front of you uh, the most um, uh, either appealing or enraging material, true or false, um, uh, to keep you on the site so they can sell you more ads. Um, and the two of them together, Mark Zuckerberg and Donald Trump are doing a dandy time a dandy job, excuse me, of undermining truth and trust and destroying our cognitive immunity, our ability to sort out fact from fiction, and our social immunity, our ability to come together to do big, hard things. Let me ask you about um, the, the spot we're in in terms of um, partisanship. You, a decade ago, were an advocate for what you called radical centrism. And you had written um, and supported the policies of, of, of Republican presidents, including uh, the President Bush's decision to go into Iraq. You had followed around, spent quite a bit of time with James Baker in a previous Republican administration. And now you've come out and you've supported Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. And I guess my question is, is this part of, this, of, of kind of where we are as a country? And does it begin to erode your ability to build that common good 
and to build the credibility to talk outside of this kind of everything is politics world war that we're in today. Well, there's sort of a lot of things in there. So let's, you know, um, unpack it a little bit. The everything is politics point came from uh, an Israeli religious philosopher, Moshe Halbertal, who, who simply was making the point that politics has to be about something other than itself uh, to have meaning and, and, um, and be productive. If everything is politics, um, uh, then it's really hard to function in any, in any uh, in advance as a society if face masks are politics. Uh, if the laws of gravity are politics, um, if every job appointment is politics, if ramming through uh, appointing a new Supreme Court justice uh, is simply driven by politics, the timing of it, then once everything becomes politics, then it's you're you're really you're through the looking glass. And politics has to be about something other than itself. Um, so uh, you know that that's sort of one problem we have. The the other is that. You know, if you ask me what my hope is, you know, if I could, I, I can't travel right now, Larry, but if I could travel anywhere, uh, I would love to travel to South Carolina. Um, and I'd love to sit down with African-American men and women there, and, you know, maybe go to a church up to the choir on a Sunday morning and ask them one question. Um, uh, you, you guys really lifted Joe Biden up off the mat. I mean, Joe Biden's candidacy, he was down for the count before Jim Clyburn and the voters of South Carolina uh, lifted him up. I mean, the referee was counting Joe Biden out. One, two, three. And then South Carolina reached up and, and stilled his hand. Um, uh, and it was really the, the black vote there. And I, I'd love to just sit around and, um, and ask, why did you do that? Uh, it wasn't because you wanted him to point Kamala Harris as vice president, because you could have voted for her. I mean, she was, even though she was by then out of the race, but if you wanted a black candidate, you could have voted for Cory Booker, you know? Um, I think it's because there was some real wisdom there that they intuited that our country is getting ripped apart. And what it needed was someone who could actually begin to repair it from the center, someone who actually could work with Republicans um, and pull it back together. And so my fervent hope is that I, I, I hope Biden wins in a, in a landslide. I hope this version of the Republican Party is crushed um, because it deserves to be crushed um, and that it fractures between the Trump cult and moderate Republicans of whom there are many still, I believe. And you get a, a whole new center being forged. And that's why in, I've done a couple of columns urging Biden to, to basically form a national unity government uh, and, and appoint two or three Republicans uh, to his cabinet um, and really try to rebuild the center. Uh, because there, we only have big, hard things left to do, Larry, and big, hard things can only be done together. Um, and if we just have four more years of this, I really worry. And, and, um, but but what, is, what the Republican coalition has become is a president without shame, backed by a party without spine, amplified by a network without integrity. I'm sorry, that's what it is. Um, it has nothing to do with the Republican leadership. I admired the people I covered, Jim Baker, George Schultz, George H.W. Bush. It has nothing to do with them. This is a deeply aberrant political phenomena. And um, I believe for the health of both conservative ideology, um, and this I'm not alone, if you read Michael Gerson or Pete Wenner or, or George Will, for the health of conservative ideology, and I have some conservative twitches myself, 
um, this version, this Trump cult version of republicanism really has to be destroyed. Yeah, we had uh, Pete Weiner out several times um, over the past year or two. Um, your colleague at the Times, uh, Ross, Ross Dothett, uh, takes a slightly different take on the threat of Donald Trump. He says the president is a noisy weakling, not a budding autocrat. He says he's going to leave power like a normal president. If he tries to resist, it'll be a farce. And he goes through the limitations that Trump has as an autocrat compared to real autocrats, including the lack of popularity, his lack of power over the media, um, the lack of support from his own military, and on and on. Um, do you worry that sometimes our fears about democracy's demise may actually reinforce the fragility of our democracy? No, no, I, 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 I disagree with Ross on that. I, I think that um, uh, I think one of the most dangerous things ever written about Trump was uh, the person who wrote when he was elected, who scolded uh, the press when he was elected, saying, oh, you silly uh, reporters and, and editors, you took Trump literally um, when his supporters only took him figuratively. Well, literally, we saw Donald Trump call the president of Ukraine and use American military aid um, as a lever to try to force him to disclose information that would smear his rival in the, in the next election. Literally, we've watched Bill Barr uh, at Trump's behest turn the Justice Department into a law firm uh, for the Trump family company. Um, we've literally uh, seen this guy speak 20,000 plus um, falsehoods and misleading statements. So um, uh, thinking that, and, and by the way, speaking in the military, we literally saw him suborn the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Secretary of Defense to accompany him on a walk outside the White House to a church across the street after the street was forcibly cleared of peaceful demonstrators who were there legally so he could stand and pose with a Bible upside down. So um, uh, if I'm wrong, Larry, then people will just say, Tom, you exaggerated. You know, I'll just say, wow, I really was worried and uh, you know, I'm really sorry about that. Um, uh, but I'd rather, I'd rather ring the alarm bell and later say I rang it too loud than not ring it at all. Mm -hmm. um, another topic you've been writing for many years about the implications of uh, what you call the flat world, the world is flat, um, and America's economic prosperity, our global influence are clearly tied to the knowledge economy that's grown up and I'm curious if you know your views about whether we can sustain the kinds of public investments in education or de-spending for different aspects of this knowledge economy that have that put America in, as the world leader um, in a whole set of industries can that continue can that flourish in a world that's so polarized in which you've got so many people who are not part of that dynamic sector. Well, you know, it's if if it can't, then we're in trouble because it's the engine of economic growth. You know, um, 
and it just just your question larry seems like a I have to dust off the cobwebs in my head just to get to it. Um, uh, oh, that was what we used to talk about before. You know, I mean, like before three years ago, before the madness. Um, uh, and, you know, we, we, people who don't think about the future tend not to do well there, you know. Um, and like we've had no conversation at all in this country for the last four years about what world are we living in? What are the big trends in this world? Um, how do we best align ourselves with those trends? And how do we then give more Americans uh, the tools they need to thrive in that world? So um, uh, that's, you know, that's really, we're, we're, we're just in that sense falling behind. Fortunately, we have a dynamic society that can go on um, without a lot of government direction, but we'd sure be getting a, a lot more out of it if we had a government that was thinking about what are the enabling tools at the federal level we can do? Uh, whether it's H-1B visas, whether it's a, uh, a, a national compact on immigration, whether it's infrastructure spending. We, we haven't had that conversation at all. You know, uh, China has. Um, China's just sitting there having that conversation every day um, yeah. and doing it in an autocratic way, not in a way I want, um, but they are doing it. And I, I think we, we um, uh, eventually that, that catches up to you, you know, um, I think China has the worst ruling system in the world. I think America has the best, but I think China is getting 90% out of a bad system and we're getting 10% out of a good system. Uh, and, and that's really what, what's worrying me. Um, and I, I just say, I'm working on another book right now. I don't know when it'll be done, whatever, but it's really about, you know, this, the world we're in right now, which I, which I describe as fast fused and deep, you know, really, really defined by this acceleration in the pace of technological change fused, excel, uh, defined by this way telecommunications is fusing us together as well as climate change. And then deep, the way technology is really going deep into things so much so that without anyone ordering it, a global lexicographer, we all suddenly started using the adjective deep. Deep fake, deep research, deep medicine, deep mind. Um, uh, we all suddenly reach for this word because we intuited technology was going to a depth um, could toggle my DNA, could fake your visage in a way no one could uh, uh, ever imagine, that, um, that it wasn't enough just to call it fake. We had to call it deep fake. It wasn't enough to call it medicine. We had to call it deep medicine. And you know, I'm a big believer in popular culture, Larry, and, and uh, um, uh, you, you may remember that the song that won the Oscars uh, a year ago was uh, by Lady Gaga, and it was called Shallow. But the main verse is, uh, I'm off the deep end, watch as I dive in, I'll never reach the ground, crash through the surface where they can't hurt us. We're far from the shallow now. Oh, Larry, baby, we are far from the shallow now. So the world is getting fast, fused, and deep all at the same time. And because of that, let me just finish this one point, Larry. Because yeah. of that, the only way you can actually govern this world is through ecosystems through what I call complex adaptive coalitions. And that's why these parties all over the world are struggling now because they grew out of the left-right binary grid, but we're in a world now where those binary left-right you know, uh, positions, they actually don't align with this world. You know, I think one of the, the concerns that um, some folks have is that the inequality that's been generated in America because so many people are not part of the knowledge economy because they're less well-educated, because 
of the jobs they have, that in some circumstances that's been a driver of right-wing populism that elected Donald Trump, and that that is part of the forces that are now resisting the investment in education, the investment in science, the investment in R&D that is the lifeblood for this knowledge economy, this kind of 21st century um, direction that America you know, has been pointing towards for now decades, but maybe losing its spot. Well, I'm, I, I think any monocausal uh, explanation for Trump is um, uh, what would be insufficient in my view. I've not been to a Trump rally, but I've watched them on TV and um, uh, doesn't look like a lot of poor people to me. Um, and I sure know a lot of Trump uh, voters in my life and they aren't poor people. There, there may be Trump voters who are, you know, um, working class, uh, who, who have not experienced that growth in income, but um, there are a lot of them that are wealthy. I think this is much more complicated by that. I think. Trump is fed by a lot of different rivers. One is a, a, a clearly a, a real pushback against um, the kind of uh, political correctness you see uh, choking some college campuses today. They, they love it when Trump is naughty, um, when, he, when he breaks all the rules of political correctness. I think it's driven by people who, yes, want to redivide the pie, but also they want to grow the pie. Um, I think it's driven by people who fear we're becoming a minority majority country. Um, I think it's driven by people who think that if you want to immigrate to this country, you, you should have to ring the doorbell, not just walk in. So I think that there are a lot of things, you know, some things are true, even if Donald Trump believes them. I'm not saying all those are, but I'm just saying that he's touching on real things. But I think they're cross cutting. I think turning this into a socioeconomic explanation alone would be would be not correct. I think there are a lot of Trump voters too who aren't actually paying any attention to Trump. They actually hate the people who hate Trump more than they care about Trump. So they're actually, they just actually hate lib what they see as liberal elites and Trump is the stick they poke in their eye. Um, and that's why we in the media keep coming to these people with more information about Trump. Do you realize he only paid $750 in taxes? Do you realize he was you know, having an affair with a porn star? Do you realize that he tried to enlist a foreign government to undermine his rival and that we keep coming to them with more information and they couldn't care less because they're not actually, they know who he is. Um, but what's really motivating them is that they are, um, they really despise the people who despise Trump, liberal elites who they think look down on them. And, um, uh, and, and, and I think that's what a lot of this is about. It's a really complicated dynamic. And then there's just people who want their tax cut, you know, and just ready to ignore everything else or people who want, you know, um, to take away the right to choose and ignore everything else. So I think, I think he's carrying a lot of different suitcases ideologically. Hmm. Um, let's, let's, let's go to the world, which is uh, one of your beats. You have been, um, I think, studious in both calling out Donald Trump for um, policies and directions that you find abhorrent. You've also recognized areas where he's had foreign policy successes. You've talked about China uh, in terms of his forceful challenge. And, and more recently, you've been really quite positive about the uh, Middle East deal with, between Israel and some moderate Arab states. You 
Um, and I'm wondering, at one point, in one of your terrific columns in mid-September, you described the Middle East uh, deal as a soap opera. Could you briefly explain that? <laughs> um, well, you know, there were so many cross-cutting currents that made that deal possible. And, and yes, I, I, I supported that deal. And for the next two weeks, Trump would go give speeches on it and say, and, and Tom Friedman from the New York Times supported it. You know, he would even quote me. It's, um, uh, I really believe you call balls and strikes. So if I see something he does that I like, I, I, I support it. I, on China, I said that uh, Donald Trump is not the American president America deserves, but he sure is the American president that China deserves. Um, uh, in terms of someone who is ready to push back. So, so where he does the right thing, I, I, I have no problem uh, aligning with it. Um, the Middle East deal, though, uh, came about in, in such a crazy way. So uh, let's just backtrack. Jared Kushner, who's doing all this on behalf of the president, uh, spends two years thinking up a peace plan. He finally comes up with it last January. I was actually in Israel when he came up with it. And the plan basically calls for Israel to be able to annex 30% of the West Bank. Palestinians get 70% of the West Bank, but in all chopped up little kind of Bantu stands, uh, a loosely connected and a, a capital uh, on the outskirts of Jerusalem, um, and then some land swaps uh, as well. And um, that was his vision of a two-state solution. Um, that vision was actually um, uh, almost dictated by Netanyahu himself um, and uh, Ron Dermer, Netanyahu's ambassador in Washington. And uh, Kushner made no bones about it. He was super pro-Israel um, uh, and, and, and the Palestinians rejected the whole thing and wouldn't actually negotiate with him. So Kushner comes out with the plan um, and it kind of falls like a lead balloon. Palestinians aren't, won't engage with it at all. And um, what happened, though, is that Trump's ambassador to Israel, a guy named David Friedman, uh, no relation, as they say, um, who is basically almost serves like the ambassador of the settlers to the United States rather than the U.S. ambassador to Israel. Um, Friedman uh, goes to Netanyahu, apparently, and said, you should just go, uh, Palestinians have, have rejected the whole plan. You should just go annex your 30% right now. Um, and, uh, and Netanyahu was gearing up to do that when Trump and Kushner, I mean, to their credit, um, uh, said, that's not, uh, you can't do that. We won't support that because obviously all the Arab states were against it or America's Arab allies. And, um, uh, and Netanyahu kept saying, we're going to do this on July 1st. And, and he kept having to push it back. And the settlers are, are Netanyahu's base. They're a key part of his base because Netanyahu, meanwhile, is being charged um, and faced in trial basically now on, uh, uh, on counts of bribery and corruption. And um, he's trying to use the legal system to avoid that. So the last thing he can afford to lose is, is a key pillar of his base, the settlers. So he keeps kind of trying to mollify the settlers. I'm going to get it and next week we'll do this and then we're going to next. Anyways, nothing happens basically. And meanwhile, the settlers say to Bibi, as for the Palestinians getting 70%, because what Kushner and Trump said to Netanyahu was, you can get your 30%, but only if you agree that the Palestinians get a state of their own, albeit as fragmented as the Kushner plan in, envisaged, uh, in the rest of the West Bank. And the settlers um, uh, would not agree to that. Uh, and so Netanyahu is kind of struck, stuck. Uh, and then into the picture came the UAE, basically, 
which had been looking uh, uh, in order to counterbalance Iran to open uh, a more formal relationship with Israel. They had a deep informal one. And they basically made a proposition to Netanyahu, we'll get you out of the tree. Um, we will open formal diplomatic and trade and tourist relations with Israel, provided you agree uh, that we get F-35s from Washington and that um, you will not go ahead with annexation. And Netanyahu jumped at it because it was a way for him to sort of get something for the settlers, not that they care so much about the UA, but feel like he got something while at the same time um, backing down from his plans to annex the 30%. So it kind of fell into Trump's lap, to be honest. It wasn't, it wasn't like he thought up this crazy uh, Rube Goldberg kind of connection between things. And, um, but from my point of view, anything that makes the Middle East look and feel more like the European Union with countries trading and, and having good relations and tourism with each other, I think it's a good thing. You know, I think it'll be more healthy for the region. Um, uh, and uh, so I, 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 I welcome that. But uh, what I said about the, the plan was that um, well, I, the day they signed it, I said this plan was important both for what it accomplished, but for what it revealed. And what it revealed was something very, very important. It revealed, because remember what I said, Netanyahu and his ambassador, they basically wrote the basic contours of the Kushner plan. Kushner's approach Netanyahu for, for decades has told American statesmen and women, um, test me, test me, test me, test, test me, test me, test me. Wink and nod. I'm telling you, you test me. You give me my everything I need for my politics, and you will be amazed what I'll be ready to give up. Test me, test me. And what did Kushner do? He tested him. He basically gave Netanyahu the pen and said, you draw, what, what, what is it you need? You draw it. And Netanyahu did it. And what the plan revealed was that Netanyahu could not accept Netanyahu's own plan. The, the settlers turned him down and he would not override the settlers. Bibi would not accept Bibi's plan. So this whole thing, as I wrote, didn't just uh, advance relations between Israel and the Gulf states. It also revealed something huge, which is that the two-state solution is over as far as uh, as long as Bibi Netanyahu is in power, for sure, um, if not more. And therefore, the Palestinian issue will recede from an international issue to a much more internal Israeli issue. Um, Palestinians over time are sure to demand their civil rights and equality. Um, and this will pose a deep uh, moral and political challenge to Israel. Israel and Netanyahu could always deflect that challenge. It was always there. They could always deflect that challenge by saying, Two-state solution, the peace process is coming. The Secretary of State is coming. Hold off. It's not, but yeah, but now, what U.S. Secretary of State is going to engage with Netanyahu when Netanyahu could not accept Netanyahu's own plan? Yeah, that's so, an incredible, you know, that's an um, incredible analysis of yeah, what just so that's, happened. That's what actually happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, it, and of course, Trump's out there. For him, it's just headlines and he doesn't care. But, but hey, the, the headlines are good. Anything that makes the region, as I say, more open and integrated, it's and really good. It, you know, as concerned. you said, the test is going to come in time about yeah. whether this is a piece but the of Palestinian, paper. yeah, it didn't go away. That didn't issue. In right, fact, exactly. I think it actually sharpened that issue by right. really exposing where Netanyahu is. Tom, I want to move you over to China. Um, as you mentioned, you've praised uh, the president for being tougher on China than any previous president. And I guess my question is, when I look at previous presidents, 
they haven't, you know, had this muscular talk. They haven't, you know, suspended trade or threatened trade wars. But it looks to me like, you know, they've been pretty active on the diplomatic front. They were basically created a noose. The Obama years um, built on the Bush years in terms of this rebalancing of of military and diplomatic power uh, around China. Um, doesn't that count? I mean, it, it seems to me that if we praise Trump for being tough, we're devaluing, you know, that alternative approach, which is about diplomacy and the the kind of presentation of military power in order to empower diplomatic um, solutions. Uh, Larry, it's a very good question. Um, and you'll notice in all my writings, I have never praised Trump um, in comparison to previous presidents. He was the right president for now. I thought Obama was the right president for then. And also, I've been very limited in my praise uh, for Trump uh, on China. It's very qualified. So let's, let's, let's sort of unpack the whole thing. Because um, uh, I'm writing, I'm not just throwing this stuff out there. I'm really thinking very careful about every word that I'm, I'm saying. Uh, sure, and, and why, and, and it, it has a logic, it, it's operating out of a larger framework. So my, my view is that um, the last 40 years of US-China relations are, will go down as an, a constitute an epoch, 1979 to 2019. And it was an epoch of unconscious um, uh, integration, unconscious in the sense that Anyone in America over time could wake up and say, I want to have a supply chain from China. I want to start a company in China. The U of M could say, I want to have an exchange program with Chinese students. Um, American companies could say, I could want to hire a Chinese student. Chinese companies could say, I want to be listed on the NASDAQ. I want to partner with American companies. And the two countries really economically grew together rather tightly into what I, you know, uh, tongue in cheek called one country, two systems. But we in China, not China and Hong Kong, we're the real one country, excuse me, two systems. Um, uh, I would argue that the, the relative, and underline that word three times, that the relative pre peace and prosperity that the world has enjoyed since 1979, as globalization has expanded, was really heavily built on and dependent on this US-China Entente uh, and collaboration. And it brought more people in China out of poverty faster than any comparative period of history in the world. Um, and as I said, we collaborated on some big things like certain global trade rules and um, uh, like the Paris Climate Agreement. And so I was totally supportive of President Obama's approach to that. What happened in the second half of Obama's term and then in the first half of Trump's term though was a shift. And it was on a couple of different axes. So one shift so I've been visiting China for, you know, since, um, uh, you know, the late 1980s. Um, and I can tell you, you referred to, I've sold a lot of books in China. I've done, I've done campus talks in China. I've done bookstore talks in China. China today is so much more open, Larry, yeah. than it was 40 years ago. And it is so much more closed than it was seven years ago. In other words, there's been, there's been a real U-turn under Xi Jinping. Um, and Trump and Obama sort of uh, overlapped that U-turn, okay? Um, and uh, there's been a real hardening uh, inside China in terms of uh, freedoms of expression, albeit previously very limited, 
but now even more so. Uh, the New York Times has been thrown out. The Washington Post has been thrown out. Um, uh, I don't know when or if I'll ever get another visa. Uh, so there's been a real U-turn here. Uh, and you have Xi Jinping naming himself president for life. And that story never ends well anywhere. Um, and so uh, I, I'm very concerned about where China's going there. Now, parallel to all of that, the very structure of US-China trade also changed. So for, I would say for the first 30 years, uh, we sold China what I call deep goods. Uh, deep goods are things like microchips, software, stuff that went deep inside their economy, their homes, their businesses, uh, and uh, economic systems. China sold us shallow goods, things we wore on our back, uh, socks we wore on our ankles, shoes we wore on our feet, solar panels we put on our roof. They sold us shallow goods, we sold them deep goods. What happened in the last decade, in parallel to the Xi Jinping move, was that China be able, was able to start making a lot of deep goods. That's what the whole Huawei 5G story is about. Suddenly China has the best, the cheapest, you know, 5G telecom product in the world. And, um, and so the, uh, when we sold them deep goods and they sold us shallow goods, we didn't care whether China was authoritarian, libertarian, or vegetarian. But when they wanted to sell us deep goods, suddenly the, the mismatch in values, the fact that we don't have a shared framework to trust each other to buy their deep goods, suddenly that really mattered. The third thing that happened was a technological change where everything became dual use. So again, when they were buying our soybeans and we were buying their toys, just as an extreme caricature example, well, you know, uh, a Barbie doll is not dual use, all right? That is civilian military application, but this baby is, okay? Uh, or elements of this baby. So three things kind of stacked up, actually four, and I'll give you the fourth. China does this U-turn sort of politically. Um, they're now able to sell us deep uh, goods. Um, and uh, uh, at the same time, they begin projecting their power as they're growing stronger in the South China Sea. And Obama really responds um, to, to that. Um, uh, and what was the, the, the fourth is, um, uh, I'll think of the fourth in a second, but the net, net result of it, oh, th th this was the fourth, which is that, how did China get rich, Larry? How did it go from poverty to middle income? Um, it went from poverty to middle income using a number of strategies. First, really hard work, really hard work. Second, delayed gratification. Third, massive investments in education. Fourth, massive investments in infrastructure. Fifth, stealing other people's intellectual property. Sixth, forced technology transfer. Seventh, non-reciprocal trade arrangements. Eighth, non-compliance with WTO rulings. So it's this combination of kind of cheating and really hard work, very unusual. You know, you don't see this, you know, in history very often. Um, and um, for 30 of those 40 years, American businesses were ready to wink and turn a blind eye to the cheating because they were making so much money anyways. This is a gross exaggeration, but basically was the situation. So American business was the ballast in the relationship. And if an American president wanted to do something hard, the American Chamber of Commerce in Beijing came on and said, wait, wait, 
let us handle this, you know, because we're all making money here. That stopped also in the last six, seven years. The ballast was removed from the relationship. And all of that happened between Obama and Trump. So Obama reflected the front end of that by really shifting geopolitically, more military resources to Asia. And then Trump came along and basically called the game on trade and economics. And that's what happened. So that's why I'm not critical of Obama. And this, this was all an evolving thing. Obama was there in the right way at the right time. And Trump is here, I believe, at the right way at the right time, except this. And, and this is where I've been enormously critical of him. Um, Trump is really good at breaking things. If you want something broken, man, this is your guy. You want a Paris climate agreement broken, he's your guy. You want Obamacare broken, he's your guy. You want the Iran trade, the Iran nuclear deal broken, he's your guy. This guy is really good at breaking things, especially things that say made by Obama on them, okay? Um, but he is actually really bad at building things because to build something, you have to build a coalition and you've got to give the other side something. And the minute he tries to do that, he's afraid his base is going to rise up. Look what he tried to negotiate a, a uh, immigration deal. And one tweet from Ann Coulter, you know, that he was abandoning the base and, and uh, uh, Trump scurried away. So what was the right way to approach China? To me, the right way was sign the Trans-Pacific Trade Deal that brought 40% of global GDP into our alliance under American trade rules designed to American trade interests. Then you should have gone to the Europeans and gotten them the other, another 40% of global GDP on our side. Then you go to Xi Jinping and you say, now we are gonna negotiate new trade rules. It's gonna be the world versus China on what are the right and fair rules of trade for the 21st century. Instead, Trump tore up TPP without reading it. He wouldn't know what it had in it if it hit him over the head. He said, um, I'm gonna make the Europeans pay more for NATO like, you know, they're a French restaurant in Trump Tower. Got to pay more rent, Mr. Xi, um, and Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Macron. And, um, and got all caught up worrying about, you know, auto tariffs on Germany. He completely abjured aligning himself with the EU on China, which has the same issues we have, and said, I'm going to make this Trump versus Xi over who has the biggest tariff. Come on, Mr. Xi, let's see who has the biggest tariff, okay? And when you do that, what you do is you trigger all the Chinese nationalist instincts to rally to Xi and not to you. And you basically got what he got, which was the Chinese kind of buying him off, basically. Um, rather than making it the world against China on the right and fair universal trade rules, in which case you leverage the reformers in China on your side. So and that, is, and that was, yeah, that's, and that so was it's, the, yeah. Go ahead. That was, that was the strategy that past Democratic and Republican presidents had been pursuing. And yeah. um, you, you know, Gabriel Allman, who's a famous Harvard um, professor, he wrote a book a few years ago called The Thucydides Trap. And what he does is he goes back to the 5th century BC and he traces 16 instances in which you have a established it's power. Graham like Allison. Graham Allison. I'm, I'm sorry, Graham yeah. Allison, yeah. Um, which you've got an established power that's challenged by an up-and-coming power. In three-quarters of those cases, going back to the 5th century BC, there's war, and, and often cataclysmic war. Is the United States, do you think the United States and China 
are are kind of inching towards a situation where there could be a blunder that leads to a war. I mean, the South China Sea looks looks very very uh, dangerous these days. What do you think? Well, I think we should worry about it. I ended my column today, you know, by saying China, Russia, please don't invade America because um, we're not who we used to be. Uh, and I don't fear that China is going to invade America and take over Chinatown in L.A. or something like that. But they could definitely try to seize Taiwan uh, in this vacuum. And um, I was just talking to some of my colleagues out there this morning uh, about just that issue, uh, some of my colleagues in, in, uh, in Taiwan. So um, uh, I think we should be very, very concerned about that. You know, um, you know, we are always stronger when we are backed by an alliance. And one of the things that Trump has also broken is the Atlantic Alliance. Um, I mean, the the polling, the Pew polling out of Europe is shocking. Uh, as many Germans trust China as they do America today. You know, that's that that, and it used to be, you know three to one or two to one before that. I mean, it's just shocking the, the reversal here. And um, uh, I, I find that very, very, four more years of this and they'll, they'll, the Atlantic Alliance will be something they'll teach a course on at the U of M in the, in the International Relations Department, you know, and it will be a history course. I wanna come back to uh, Minnesota and Minneapolis. You've written um, pained columns about what's happening in your hometown. Um, and you know, clearly the, the killing of George Floyd was an outrageous uh, incident. It um, sparked um, protests around the world. Um, it gave rise or gave new power to Black Lives Matter. Um, I wanna to read to you um, something that David Brooks, a friend and colleague of yours wrote, he said, People, meaning the protesters, are responding to the failure of the mainstream, moderate, progressive formula for how to create a more equal, pluralist America. I am a moderate guy, but the evidence doesn't support moderation when it comes to racial equity. Do you feel like what's happened with George Floyd and then the subsequent protests really an indictment on our failure to, to reach uh, racial equity? Yeah, I, I think the way I see it, Larry, is that um, ever since the 60s and the um, Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, we, we put a lot of new, very important stuff on the books, you know, um, and, and they were implemented in, in some in cases on the books, you know, um, but uh, I think that what the, the response to George Floyd um, uh, uh, and his killing um, and how it really expanded into a Black Lives Matter movement is really saying, well, we got to re-energize all of that and you got to do it intentionally. You can't just say, well, wait a minute, the, the law says this, you know what I mean? Or the regulation says this. Um, and I, I see this as the second great civil rights movement. Um, and when I uh, when I see so many whites, uh, white people marching here in Washington, um, what I hear them saying, um, what I think of in my own life is, now's the time just to be, you have to be intentional. You know, um, you're, you've got a business, it's not enough just to say, we have a black employee, you know, it's, uh, and then say, well, you know, we'd like to have more, but just can't find any, you know, because you hear that from some companies. 
Well, then maybe you should create an internship program, a mentorship program. Maybe you've got to actually go out and create that supply chain, you know, and not just say, well, we, we've got, you know, we've, we've got our one or two. We're, we're kind of safe now. We, 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 we got under the wire, you know, of the, of the 1960s. Uh, but we have, to, we have to be, I think, at a whole different level. And I think that's what's amazing about this moment. Uh, how many people want to be, want to get caught trying that? Um, uh, I think it's a bigger challenge. You got to be much more intentional. You can't just say help wanted, um, you know, really looking for, you know, people of color. Um, maybe actually go out and need to create mentorship programs and, and, uh, and scholarships and real supply chains, supply lines uh, to be able to get and broaden uh, the base. And that's why the, the column I wrote, I only wrote really one column about George Floyd was called um, uh, Out of Many We. Um, and that we really need to change our motto from out of many one, which is that we're all going to kind of meld together into this kind of largely white defined idea of oneness to out of many we, which is a deeper form of pluralism, but that we can still come together and act as one around, you know, so the one becomes the end product, not sort of the, the, uh, the byproduct, not the, uh, not the necessary goal. But I think that that's, that's where I see this going. Uh, it pains me, though, um, to see what's happened to, to Minneapolis. Um, uh, I, I do think that the, the city council got ahead of itself. And that, um, uh, you know, I really, in my own experience in life, reform is something you don't do to someone. Reform is something you do with someone. And Lord knows after the killing of George Floyd, there was a need for some real reform in not just the Minneapolis police force, but police forces around the country. But I think if you do it to people, not with people, um, you can really um, unravel something. And that seems to what, be what's happened. And I'm, one of the things that's pained me so much is I can't be out there. I can't be out there you know, walking the streets right now and really trying to understand it at a much deeper level and and write about it in the way i'd like to write about it so i'm really dependent on uh, you and other friends and reading the, the strip every day let me ask you uh let's go back to you and growing up in minnesota your mother was uh, a very accomplished bridge player she was what's known as a life master which senior life master I, yeah <laughs> she was I'm, a car truck <laughs> yeah I'm a, i'd like bridge but nowhere near that <laughs> So I'm going to use that as a kind of a, a metaphor for a political situation. Imagine that Jeb Bush wins the Republican primary in 2016. He goes on and defeats Hillary Clinton. Play the same set of circumstances that we've seen since January 2017 to today. Do you see a different outcome? Could you imagine you know, a competent uh, Jeb Bush, which is, is you know, part of his makeup, handling the coronavirus, you know, more like Germany or maybe if we got lucky, like South Korea, and Republicans on their way to re-election, perhaps comfortably today. Hard, hard to really say. You know, I mean, I, I, I've written before that Trump, I think, is, um, deserves criticism on coronavirus, not so much for what he did or didn't do early when, frankly, it was – it was big, hard, and confusing. Uh, it's for what he's not doing now when it's 
it's so clear and easy. Just wear a mask, practice social distancing, um, have a minimal plan of collaboration between states. This is, this is just really not hard stuff. And by the way, if you want the economy open, which I do, um, it, it, masks are your friends. Social distancing is your friend. It's not masks or jobs, it's masks for jobs. It's not masks or school, but masks for school. It's the unwillingness to do the simple, easy, easy things collaboratively that actually is undermining the very goals that he wants. And, and you, it, don't, you, know, you don't think right. Jeb Bush would have done that? I mean, what I know of Jeb Bush. Oh, I think he would have done uh, Yeah, uh, totally. I think it, he would have. It strikes yeah, me yeah. he would have done that. Yeah. It would be a different situation. Totally. A, a situation in which um, uh, Republicans could be, you know, looking at reelection and and. Totally. And, I mean, I, I have no doubt that almost any other Republican in would have done that, would have gathered the scientists together and basically said, what is it we need? We need a plan that will maximize saving the most lives and the most livelihoods. How do we do that? You know, um, and we never had that plan to, to this day. What is the Trump plan? You know, um, and in the face of a pandemic, you talk about being intentional. You have to be really intentional, you know. Uh, because Mother Nature, you're in a duel with Mother Nature, and she hasn't lost a duel with one of her species in 4.8 billion years. Let me see if we can end on a slightly more positive note. Um, I might need some drugs been, for that, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've been writing for years about what we need to do in terms of the environment and getting America on the path toward clean energy, clean fuel, and energy efficiency. Donald Trump, of course, has taken down um, regulations and torn up the Paris Accord and done other things that have set back our public policy. But meanwhile, the, the economy and consumers, they seem to be moving in the direction that you've been talking about for 15 years or more. Do you see that as a hopeful sign that the country is actually leading where the president didn't? It's a very good sign. It's driven really by the market. It's now cheaper to um, uh, clean the world and keep the world clean than it is to make it dirty. Um, uh, you know, solar, wind, um, uh, uh, energy efficiency, have, uh, thanks to market and technological forces, have really um, reached a, you know, near or, or um, a parity with uh, fossil fuels. And you look at the car companies, look who's the hottest company, Tesla. I mean, you can't make this up. ExxonMobil got thrown out of the Dow and was replaced by uh, uh, Tesla or, 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 uh, or Salesforce, whichever, I think it was maybe, I guess it was Salesforce, but whatever. You can see the, the shift happening here. You know, um, every car company is going electric. Every power company knows that um, coal uh, uh, for generation and uh, a coal, diesel, and increasingly natural gas are gonna be stranded assets. So the only thing now is, are we going to get there faster or slower? But we are going to get there. Uh, we are going in that direction. And a different president would have just accelerated it. But Trump can't stand in the way of it uh, because this is the market um, responding to what people want. And, um, and technology moving down the cost volume curve where they can now have what they want, what we want, and that living uh, cheap, powering cheap, uh, living clean, powering clean, um, uh, is now cheaper than doing it dirty. And, and that was always what I was, uh, what I was hoping for. So um, 
you know, I, I wish that uh, Biden were running not on the Green New Deal, um, which is a term that uh, I coined uh, back in 2008. Um, uh, I wish you were running on um, uh, what I call the Earth race. You know, for JFK in the 60s, we wanted to have a space race. Who could be the first to put a man on the moon? I think America should be challenging itself and the world to the earth race. Who can invent the most clean, green, energy efficient technologies so men and women, plants and animals can live safely, securely here on earth? And I think that's a, just a great galvanizing, you know, uh, concept. So I'm still hoping for the earth race. It's not going to be in this election, but um, hopefully if Biden wins, we'll, we'll get the equivalent of it. There we go. That's the positive update. There you go. Yeah, that's the best. That's the Tom Friedman I love. <laughs> I've got some uh, a few announcements, but but Tom, I want to thank you so much. I know you're under tremendous uh, demand yeah. and uh, our good friend. And uh, let's stay in touch. And thank you so much. We really my pleasure, Larry. Thanks so much. I'm gonna take off. Okay. Good. Take care. So I just uh, want to give you a heads up for some upcoming programs. We've got. Uh, terrific program a week before Election Day uh, to look at what's happening and get some insight uh, from Vin Weber, Republican strategist, Justin Bowen, a Democratic strategist. They'll be back the day after the election to talk about what happened or what seems to be happening. Uh, and then um, about a week after Election Day, uh, Jake Sullivan, who is one of the top people, maybe the top person, top advisor to uh, Joe Biden on foreign policy will be coming uh, in to chat. Jake is a Minnesotan and a good friend of the Humphrey schools. And we look forward to that tremendously. We've got a lot of great programs coming up in December. Some of them um, are not about politics. We've got a famous novelist coming in, to talk about his new novel and read from it. Um, so do uh, join us again. I want to let you know that all these programs are recorded. Um, and you can find them um, uh, on YouTube. Here's the address. They're also available on uh, podcast uh, with um, uh, all the major, you know, Spotify and, and um, uh, Stitcher and, um, and also Amazon, I think. Um, if you'd like to support programs like this, here's some information. Please do. Thank you very much for joining us.